Hi, folks. This is Andrew Stelzer. If you get our program through iTunes, please go there and rate us so that other people can find the show. And if you're on our website, radioproject.org, please click on the Donate button so that you can support this work and help us keep making great shows like this one. All right. Thanks. Here's the show. You're listening to Making Contact. I'm Jasmine Lopez. The root causes of migration vary widely. Some people migrate and return to their homes depending on the season, while others migrate and never return. Often, people are forced to leave their homes or flee their homes indefinitely because of poverty, extreme environmental events, armed conflict, social strife, political turmoil, and economic hardships. U.S. economic and foreign policy decisions, such as the war in Iraq or NAFTA, have fueled migration and immigration. This created an influx of both economic and political refugees here in the U.S. And in many ways, American foreign policy has created migration flows, but American domestic policy has failed to create a system to account for the consequences. On this edition of Making Contact, we hear stories from Central American migrants that take on oppressive debts, and we hear about the challenges faced in schools in the U.S. But first, we hear from Cuban migrants stuck in limbo on the route to the U.S. On March 21, 2016, President Barack Obama touched down in Havana, Cuba, the first presidential visit from the U.S. since 1928. The historic visit takes part in what President Obama called a new era with the normalization of diplomatic relations between the two nations after decades of hostility between the former Cold War rivals. Over 70,000 Cubans fled to the United States in 2015, making it one of the largest Cuban migrations to the U.S. in decades. The thawing of the U.S.-Cuban relations is pushing many Cuban migrants to leave the island, fearing a change to the long-standing policy that grants legal status to any Cuban national who reaches the U.S. These days, most migrants aren't arriving on the Florida shores by boat, but taking a longer route through South and Central America to the Texas border. In 2016, their journey was interrupted by Nicaragua, a close ally of Cuban President Castro. Luis Gallo takes us to the Costa Rica-Nicaragua border. I'm at the border crossing between Costa Rica and Nicaragua. On the Nicaraguan side, among food vendors, taxi drivers, and men informally exchanging dollars in Central American currencies, a few dozen men from the military keep guarding the crowds with their rifles in hand. They seem to be on alert. On the Costa Rican side, what stands out are the dozens of mattresses and blue and green tents surrounding the border's main checkpoint. Here is where many Cuban migrants have set up a makeshift camp. This is where I meet Mirna Fernandez, a Cuban migrant who is 41. Mirna says she has been at the border since November of 2015. That's more than two months. She was expelled from Nicaragua after crossing the border and was sent back to Costa Rica by the Nicaraguan military. A young man in a military uniform approached me and aimed his rifle at me. 
Another told me I had to leave, and I asked him, how was it possible for him to point a gun at a harmless woman? We didn't know what had happened. In November of 2015, Nicaragua's government closed its border to Cuban nationals heading north to the U.S. Since then, Nicaraguan authorities have evicted many migrants and left more than 8,000 others stuck in Costa Rica. It remains unclear why the Nicaraguan government, a close ally of Cuban President Castro, decided to seal its border to the Cuban migrants. I have three daughters in Cuba. I do this for them. I want to get to the U.S. and help my family. That is my dream. Under the Cuban Adjustment Act, any Cuban national that sets foot on American soil is granted immediate political asylum and is eligible for a green card. The law, which recognizes those fleeing the island as refugees, was passed in the midst of the Cold War and served as propaganda against the Castro regime. In that spirit that I declare this afternoon to the people of Cuba that those who seek refuge here in America will find it. The dedication of America to, to, to our traditions as an asylum for the oppressed is going to be upheld. That was part of President Lyndon B. Johnson's speech at the signing of the 1965 Immigration Bill on Liberty Island in New York City. I have directed the Departments of State and Justice and Health and Education and Welfare to immediately make all the necessary arrangements to permit those in Cuba who seek freedom to make an orderly entry into the United States of America. Many Cubans fear this policy will end as diplomatic relations between the two countries normalize. In 2015, following the embassy openings in Washington and Havana, the arrival of Cubans to the U.S. skyrocketed by 78%. The journey from Cuba often begins with a flight to Ecuador, where Cubans don't need visas to enter, followed by an overland route through Central America and Mexico to the Texas border. The next day, I visited a shelter in Liberia a city about an hour's drive from the border with Nicaragua, where a group of about 70 Cubans wait for the dinner to be served. The shelter was set up in a community church where charities and other government agencies provide housing and food for the migrants. This is where I meet Gabriel Milagros, who's 33 and has been at the shelter with his wife for more than two months. We arrived at the border with Nicaragua on the 15th of November. We stayed the night under plastic bags, and the next day, the Red Cross announced that Cubans could go to a shelter where we could have food and a place to sleep. Gabriel says he and his wife left Cuba because of the political and economic situation on the island. Cuba is stuck in time. It seems like it's stuck in the 1950s in terms of development. They took Cuba out of a global chain. The world goes around synchronized, but not Cuba. The U.S. placed an economic embargo on Cuba in 1962. The estimated economic damage of these sanctions amounts to almost $117 billion over the past 55 years. That's according to a report Cuba presented to the United Nations. The U.N. has voted in favor of lifting the embargo for 23 years in a row. These economic sanctions have had a drastic impact on everyday Cubans. Gabriel Milagros is a high school math teacher and says he was struggling to live off his salary of $24 a month. I want to find a job I can live off in a dignified way. He sold his home and decided to migrate, 
nervous that the current American immigration policy towards Cubans could change. He landed in Ecuador and paid human traffickers to take him through Colombia, where he often had to bribe police officers who threatened him to deport him back to Cuba. When we arrived to Ecuador, the couple we were with contacted people who were human traffickers. They took us through Colombia. It's hard because the police roadblocks, many times they ask for money and they threaten you to deport you back to Cuba. I met another migrant, 36-year-old Johnny Roy, who was deported from Mexico to Cuba while trying to reach the U.S. five months ago. Back in Cuba, Johnny experienced a backlash for attempting to leave. I spent three months looking for a job and couldn't find one. I'm an electric engineer who has studied a lot. You don't get a job because you're flagged. You have a huge red flag that says he tried to migrate, so you have no other choice but to try again. Johnny has a two-year-old daughter he left back in Cuba. He had to resort to asking friends to lend him money to pay for his second attempt to get to the U.S. I don't want my kids to go through this. Sometimes I didn't have enough to buy bread or milk, even with a job, which is the hardest thing. That is the reality of Cuba. We only have four TV channels, and you see what they want you to see, because in Cuba, there's violence, there's hunger. So we risk our lives for this, to reach the dream, to work, to help our families in Cuba. That's 100% the goal of all Cubans on this journey. That's the end goal. In January, Mexico, Costa Rica, and other Central American governments brokered a deal to begin airlifting the migrants in charter flights to El Salvador. Once there, they'll travel by bus through Guatemala into Mexico, where they will continue on their own. Back at the camp on the border with Nicaragua, Jaimara Alcina and her sister were told they could leave on the first flight out of Costa Rica. I leave tomorrow for El Salvador on my way to the U.S. I'm very happy because I'm finally going to continue my journey. In El Salvador, Jaimara will board a bus with other migrants and travel through Guatemala into Mexico. Once in Mexico, she will make her own way to the U.S. border. The cost for each flight and bus ticket to Mexico is $555 per person. It's still unknown how those who have run out of money in Costa Rica will pay for the rest of the way. La libertad. Freedom, in the end, it's worth it. President Obama's message was clear on why he went to Havana in March 2016. In a world that remade itself time and again, one constant was the conflict between the United States and Cuba. I have come here to bury the last remnant of the Cold War in the Americas. In addition to opening an embassy in Havana, the Obama administration recently loosened investment and banking restrictions, removed Cuba from the list of states sponsoring terrorism, and restored mail service and direct flights, which are expected to take off by the summer of 2016. Still, many people on both sides of this debate have asked, why now? Why now? There is one simple answer. What the United States was doing was not working. We have to have the courage to acknowledge that truth. A policy of isolation designed for the Cold War made little sense in the 21st century. The embargo was only hurting the Cuban people instead of helping them. 
Things are changing fast, and it's valid for many Cubans to think that the U.S. immigration policy can suddenly change. And while Cubans continue to pour into the country, Cuba has urged the U.S. to change its preferential immigration policy. But Washington has stated it will continue granting refugee status to those migrants arriving on its soil, for now. For Making Contact, I'm Luis Gallo. You're listening to Making Contact because of generous support from listeners like you. This show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to download shows or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. For many migrating from Guatemala, the journey is one that comes with a steep cost. Families often take loans against their homes or farmland in order to pay a coyote or human smuggler. But when the crossing is unsuccessful, the debt remains with these families. Zoe Sullivan brings us the story from San Jose Calderas. Hola, la Seidi. Hola, que pasa la Seidi. Seidi, dale a la piñata. Deborah Martina Junak Pastor is outside in her mother's courtyard with her daughter and nieces. The kids are trying to hit a teddy bear they've improvised into a sort of piñata. The spacious yard also holds a clothesline and chickens, and it's enclosed by a tall, concrete wall. So this is a village. It's called San Jose Calderas. It's a really small place. We're all neighbors, and we all know each other. Even though we all know each other, there are neighbors who just watch you because the people who extorted us are from this same village. When she was 16, Deborah migrated to the U.S. She followed her parents and younger siblings to Pottsville, Iowa, where she, her older brother, and her parents worked in a meatpacking plant. Roughly a year later, Deborah gave birth to Edwin. A year after that, immigration raids swept up her mother and brother, deporting them. That forced Deborah to bring Edwin and her younger siblings back to Guatemala. But as time passed with my son, the situation became really challenging. They started to extort us. And with all the insecurity, there were threats that they would kidnap my son because they knew he was from the U.S. Police arrested the people making the threats, but the men were released within 24 hours, Deborah says. She found help from Conamigua, Guatemala's government agency that provides support to migrants. The agency helps resolve legal issues and offers job training to some returnees, among other services. Ultimately, Edwin was returned to live in the U.S. with his grandfather. But the lack of work and threats against other family members have pushed Deborah's husband, Benicio, to try returning to the U.S. several times. She tells the story as she nurses her two-month-old daughter. My husband has tried to migrate to the United States. What really happened was we ended up in debt because the first time he tried, we took a loan for 12000 and he didn't make it. He tried three times, and since he didn't make it, we lost the money. Then some people offered my husband a trip to Canada, but they scammed us, and we lost 5000 and the trip didn't happen. Then later he tried again for the United States. 
He took out another loan for 10,000, and on the last attempt, the setas grabbed him and beat him. So it's better that he hasn't gone, but yeah, he wants to go because of my son who's there. Radio clips like this one air throughout Guatemala in Spanish and several Mayan languages. But Deborah's family exemplifies some of the draws that keep people attempting to cross the border. For Benicio, it isn't just Edwin's presence in the United States. It's also the debt the family has incurred with his attempts to cross the border. It now stands at 3,500 quetzals, or roughly $4,500. Benicio is now working in Guatemala City, and he returns home once every eight days. Yeah, we still have this debt because we haven't been able to pay anything because he earns very little. And so that's why he's made this decision. Just three days ago, he said to me, I want to try again. I'm going to talk with someone who will take me. And so I said to him that people aren't getting through and that we should be patient. But sometimes he despairs over the debt we have. Research from Guatemala's University of San Carlos says that Deborah's situation is common. 78% of those surveyed took out loans in order to finance their journeys to the U.S. As with Deborah's case, 40% of these loans came from informal lenders. She and her husband pay 10% interest. Mensual. Monthly. The interest is monthly. We pay the interest since we haven't been able to pay the principal because otherwise they'll take our house away. A few hours away, in the city of Quetzaltenango, Chief Investigator Francisco Coton has been working on cases like Deborah's for several years. His office, however, covers a different district within Guatemala. He investigates cases for Quetzaltenango's public ministry, a watchdog agency charged with protecting citizens. Different factors complicate his work. Coton says that in 2015, the Quetzaltenango Public Ministry only received 28 complaints about loans like Deborah's. He realizes the phenomenon is much larger, but a lack of complaints and false records make investigating tough. Notaries make changes when they draft the loan documents. So this usury, these high interest rates, are disguised as the principal. Let me explain. In reality, they deliver 25,000 quetzals, but they write that they're giving 50. And that's the basis they use to calculate interest. Con Amigua, Researchers and the National Roundtable on Migration, MENAMIG, point out that migrants often sign blank documents in order to secure a loan, leaving them completely at a moneylender's mercy. Making things worse, some families, like Deborah's, who have managed to migrate successfully, become targets of violence and extortion. We just were afraid when the girls go out because my mother still has four granddaughters here. And sometimes the danger is that they'll go out and that someone in the street will grab them. We live day to day with fear because of what we've been through. In the summer and fall of 2015, Guatemalans rose up against corruption, forcing the president and other officials to resign. This may have given hope to some that real change is possible. But for Deborah and many others like her, the daily pressures continue pushing families to take on debt in the hopes of reaching the United States and finding work. 
Menamig, Conamigua, and others are working to expose the exploitation of borrowers, but a 2002 law guarantees that any interest rate agreed to between parties in Guatemala is legal. Still, recent reforms around credit card interest rates offer some hope that change is possible. For Making Contact, I'm Zoe Sullivan in Quetzaltenango. A new wave of unaccompanied children migrating from Central America hit the news at the end of 2015. Many are still waiting to find out whether or not they will be allowed to stay or return to the countries they fled from. More than 4,000 of these unaccompanied minors have ended up in just a handful of school districts on Long Island in New York State. Schools there are scrambling to enroll the students in right classes, to hire new teachers, and just find the space for everyone. Eilish O'Neill headed out to Long Island to find out more. This street in the town of Westbury in western Long Island is dark and cold, and on the other side of a chain-link fence, a big dog is barking and lunging. But this half of the duplex is warm and bright, filled with children and the smell of spaghetti cooking. 13-year-old Carlitos lives here with his father, his two aunts, and his five cousins. Somehow, amidst the chaos, Carlitos and his dad find time for a nightly ritual. Carlos Sr. says he looks at his son's homework, quizzes, and tests every night. He left Honduras in 2002 when Carlitos was still a baby. And they didn't see each other again until Carlitos arrived in New York in April 2014. We're not using their last name because their visa hearings are still pending. The first thing Carlos Sr. did when his son arrived was to try to enroll him at the local junior high. Carlos Sr. says it was so difficult to get all the paperwork together to enroll his son in school that he nearly lost his job as a machine operator. But he finally managed, and Carlito started sixth grade just two months before the end of the school year. Me sentía bien tímido, bien pequeño, porque era el más pequeño todos ahí. Carlito says he felt very shy and very small. He was the smallest student in his class. Physically, he is small for his age, and he's nervous around people. When he talks, he doesn't make eye contact. He looks at his hands. La clase era bien grande y me sentaban entre los primeros para que me pudieran ver ahí. Y cuando sonó el timbre no sabía dónde irme y un compañero me ayudó a ir donde es que tenía que ir. The classes were big, Carlitos remembers, and his teachers put him in the first row so they could see him. When the bell rang, ten times a day, not three times as it had in Honduras, he didn't know where to go. Everything was new and bewildering. Carlitos isn't alone. When I visit Westbury High School, where Carlitos will start in the fall, the hallways are so choked with students, it's hard to push through. I hear as much Spanish as English. You know, I was just in the main office. We have students registering on a daily basis. I believe we have four or five kids coming in tomorrow to get placed into classes. This is Seth Brechtel, who's the chair of bilingual education at Westbury High School. He says a school was built to house fewer than 1,000 students, and now it has 1,500. We had this unexpected rush, and we had to hire all these teachers. We had to find space in which to 
hold all these new classrooms. And that's because, though there are 122 school districts on Long Island, most of the Central American refugees who've arrived over the past two years ended up in just a handful of districts. Kids are placed with families and other sponsors, so they tend to join existing Central American communities. At first, school districts on Long Island had trouble even processing the new students, enrolling them, testing them, placing them in the right classes. And the state's response was to hand down mandates. Students must be enrolled within five days of appearing in a school office, and schools must provide bilingual classes, English as a new language, and courses designed for students who've missed more than two years of school. Este proyecto está en dos idiomas. Out in eastern Long Island at the MLK Elementary School in the Wyandanch School District, Magali Rodriguez is teaching a class of 26 fourth graders about Jackie Robinson. Rodriguez is one of 40 new bilingual teachers hired by the Wyandanch School District just this year. And her class keeps growing. Her most recent student arrived just a few weeks ago. In fact, the Wyandanch School District has received 176 new kids from Central America over the past two years. To make sure everyone's keeping up, Rodriguez switches constantly between English and Spanish. What's most remarkable of all in all of this is that uh, the federal government has left school districts on their own. This is Margie McHugh. She's with the Migration Policy Institute, a D.C. think tank. She says on average it costs $12,000 to educate a child in a U.S. public school. And then many refugees have additional challenges such as interrupted formal education, lack of English language proficiency, high levels of poverty, and also mental health needs. Mary Jones, the superintendent of the Wyandanch School District, where Magali Rodriguez teaches, says the $16,000 she receives from the state to educate her students isn't enough to meet their needs. We have eliminated all our AP classes. Instead of being able to purchase new buses for transportation, we weren't able to do that. So you may find one or two buses doing two or three routes at the end of the day, rather than the one route. And so children do not get home on time. And, and it's an issue with parents. Uh, we also had to reduce staff in certain areas, for example, the custodial staff in the security area. In fact, New York has one of the highest levels of public education spending in the country, but the National Report Card for Fair School Spending gives the state a D. That's because wealthier districts raise high property taxes to pay for their schools, while poorer districts rely heavily on state funding. Margie McHugh says the federal government should provide additional resources to school districts where refugees end up. Even just meeting school districts halfway on this, I think, would make an enormous difference in terms of their ability to do a much better job. Back in Westbury, Carlito says he's doing better this year. He knows where his classes are, and he's made some friends who are also Central American refugees. His older cousins help him with his homework. He says he still doesn't feel comfortable speaking English, but he can understand it okay. And his dad says Carlitos has been bringing home pretty good grades. Carlos Sr. says the lowest grade he's seen this year, an 85. For Making Contact, I'm Alicia O'Neill in New York.
that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Do you have a personal migration story that you'd like to share with us? You can do that on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. For more information, go to radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcasts, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Redman, Juan Booth, Monica Lopez, and Marie Chan. I'm Jasmine Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Hey out there, Making Contact listener. You know, we're not just on the radio these days. You can connect with us on social media. Let us know what topics you want to hear about in our upcoming shows so we can make them better. And keep us doing what we're doing. Radioproject.org is the place. Thanks.